John chapter 5, verse 2, and others following. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen, and we believe it. You may be seated. This sermon title is called Worst Things. That phrase where Jesus says, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Worst things mean something worse than what you've already been through. I don't know about you, but some of the worst things in my life I've been through, I don't want worse ones. I definitely don't like some of them, and I don't know how I made it through some of them, but by the grace of God, I did. And uh, I trust that those worst things that he said would come upon this man hopefully aren't in our future. I hope that. But he says they come upon you. That come upon you, I, I thought it meant, you know, like like plop. You know, like if you do something bad immediately, something bad happens. Like good karma, bad karma. You do something good, good things happen. But it's not what that phrase means. It means that it's going to catch you off guard. If you sin and you don't see any immediate consequences, the consequences of sin is not necessarily immediate. It'll catch you off guard and you may not even relate it to the situation that caused it. If you've ever seen an old Western or videos out west of the tumbleweeds blown by the wind and they just kind of roll along, that thing, if you're in its path, it hits you. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. It's like this thing's like a rolling tumbleweed and it plops on you and you don't know it's coming because you're just living your life. So he says, stop sinning or this thing's going to happen to you and you're not going to be prepared. But he said it's the worst thing. And I was scratching my head about that. That's the reason I called this worst things. He'd been in um, bed, if you will, for 38 years with an infirmity, unable to walk or be in public or be considered a part of the community of faith. 38 years of that. I'm assuming at his age, he doesn't have another 38 years to live. So what would be worse than 38 years of being stuck in an infirmity? I had to chew on that a little bit. Now, I've asked some people about it. I've got different answers. One of the answers was, well, you know, the infirmity could be that uh, he's going to be in hell. And that's much worse. And I would agree. There are other answers I received, but I, but I thought about this for a minute and I thought, what if 
The man had the possibility of being totally healed by Jesus, changing his life, but didn't. Wouldn't that be worse? Yes, you end up with the consequences at the end of our lives of not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, but living your life without Him or knowing who He truly is has to be a a hellish place enough to be worse than just being infirm physically. What happens when Jesus tells him that is the man goes back to the temple where they're asking him who healed him and told him to violate the Sabbath. And then he goes and tells him Jesus did it. He tattled, if you will. And it seems his desire, this man's desire, wasn't to be grateful and thank Jesus, but rather find out who it is so he can deliver the information to the temple leaders and they can do what they need to. So he wanted to be connected to the temple. But what he didn't see is Jesus is the temple of God made flesh right in front of him. So maybe one of his infirmities or sicknesses could be spiritual blindness. What do you think? You think spiritual blindness might be at work in that man? We don't know, but it sure seems plausible since he doesn't become grateful and thankful to Jesus, but would rather be connected to the temple than the one who healed him. But Jesus seems to be saying that sickness and problems are caused by sin. Do you think so? Maybe God allows us to be afflicted as a warning sign when sin's in our life. That we're doing the wrong things or that we're headed the wrong direction. So the consequences say, stop what you're doing. Maybe God's trying to get our attention by allowing those consequences to happen. Yet, it seems like what we deal with is a natural part of life and not necessarily a result of a sin that has happened to us or in our world. But is it? It's a good question. Do you think that sin or disobedience to God doesn't carry a consequence? Or do you think it doesn't result with another life issue added to it? The Garden of Eden was perfect. Yet one sin took that all away. Was there a consequence? All of a sudden there was labor and childbirth. Men had to work all the days of their life to provide. All these different consequences of that sin. Now, we didn't create that consequence, but we're under it the moment we're born in this world. We're going to be in toil or labor in our lives working. That's a part of that consequence of someone else's sin. There are things that have happened to us in our family generation upon generation where sins visit the next over and over. And we're under that. And through no action of our own, it happens to us. There's some genetic diseases and hereditary things passed down that are not holy or godly or physically well that pass down through the generations. And sin has an original form started that and it inflicts us. 
For me, it's my height, my size, whatever else about me was passed on. And you might say, well, that's that's just normal. Yes, it is. But in the perfect world, I would never die. In the Garden of Eden, they were not going to die. So there's passed on into this frame. One day it'll be gone. Like we said, Wednesday, it'll turn back to dust. And when I turn back to dust, just like you will, that is a because we must die due to the wages of sin. Scripture says the wages of sin is more sin and the wages of more sin is death. So this body, because there's sin affecting it, the power of sin upon it, running through it, and yours and all of us, this body must die. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ said we can be reborn and have a well-living life regardless of the state and status of this body. That we have a choice to be well in Jesus Christ as well as we can be in this life, but completely well in the next. And Jesus wants to know, despite our circumstances, are we willing to do things the way He asks us to do so we can be as well as reasonably expected in this life and well, as in the word hugies, well in terms of our choices, our beliefs, and our decisions reflecting the will of God and His Word working through us. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery, John 8? There is no question that she has done wrong. And the law says such a woman must be stoned, and they have stones in their hand. At the end of the story, everyone has dropped their stones, and the only person left is Jesus. And Jesus knows her state. He knows what she's been doing. He didn't have to be there to know. Jesus knows. He didn't have to be observant or a participant in the sin to know about it. And he asked her, Where are your condemners? Where are they? And she said, they've all gone. And he says this, I'm not going to condemn you either, but stop sinning. Go, sin no more. Stop doing what you've been doing. Choose differently based on the fact that you've been forgiven and a new lease on life is yours. Maybe you remember the story Because he didn't just tell this to the woman caught in adultery and this infirm man to stop sinning. He also said to the man who was infirm and Jesus was in a home, the story in Mark chapter 2, where they bring him to be healed by Jesus, some friends, and they can't get in the house. Do you remember the story? And they go up on the roof and they open up the roof and they drop him down. This infirm man in front of Jesus and he marvels at the faith of the friends. He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. And he's go, and they're all going, he's an infirm man. Why does he need his sins forgiven? You know, this man can't forgive sins. That's blasphemy. And Jesus says this. And this phrase puzzled me until I got to this infirm man in Bethesda. He said, which is easier to say? There's no other translation, but to say it that way, which is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. Which is easier. 
What he's saying is, it's the same thing. But how does the forgiveness of sin heal a physical infirmity? And so he says, to show that man, the Son of Man has the power and the authority to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go your home. And the man does that. And they all glorified God for the work Jesus did that day. That were there, and nobody could argue with the fact God did it. And here's a man who's infirm for 38 years, and Jesus says, stop sinning. Or it's going to get worse for you. What Jesus is telling the man is, sin has affected you. And you justified your sin and kept it as a part of who you are and you won't change what you choose to believe about God. You refuse to accept the grace of God and His healing and expect someone else to do all the work for you. This is a sin. He says, stop doing that. Stop trying to placate and blame other people for your problems. And immediately the man leaves and goes and tells the temple authorities, going back, it seems, to his mess. I wonder what worse would have come upon him. We don't know the rest of his story. I just pray that this was a one-time thing that he really did get the message from Jesus. But Jesus doesn't win all the time. He doesn't always get what he needs from the person to change. There are some people who refused to accept that he was who he was. And many of them eventually chose for him to be crucified. Some people crucify Christ in their daily life. Some people actually crucify Christ in actuality. Why would I suggest, or why would you even accept, that some of your struggles are caused by yourself? Why would I be so callous as to think that your choices gave you problems? I'm being facetious here, okay? Most of our choices, we have to live with the consequences of. And, and I can't tell you that that would be incorrect and say, no, you don't have to live with the things you've chosen because, you know, you didn't mean to. The fact is, it's easier for us to blame other people for our problems. Instead of getting down and doing the work and coming to God, doing what we need to do with God, and then doing the work and the follow-up on that. To do what we have to do, our part in this. Rather than saying, I can't do anything, it's everybody else's fault. But there's a lot of people in the faith that think that way. That it's thrust upon them, and therefore, they're powerless to change. But the fact of the matter is, what we choose to do, what we choose to believe, is on us. I can't be held accountable or responsible for what somebody else does. And neither can you. God is not going to look up there on the day of eternity and go, well, look at all these people over here and, and you, you're responsible for what they did. He's not going to flash their lives in front of your eyes. He's going to flash yours and your choices and your beliefs. And he's going to say, what are you going to do about that? What, what caused you to do that? Why didn't you listen? That's what he's going to say. He's not going to say, 
Well, the other people did this, therefore I did that. He's only going to look at what you did. I've always seen this as, well, you know, God's going to understand because the situation I was in was difficult and all this other stuff. But God says, you have a brain. You can think. You can choose. You don't have to do those things once you understand who you are in me because I've given you authority over the power of sin in your life. Hear me. If somebody's done something to you or victimized you or hurt you, you have the authority in Jesus Christ to rise up over that and take authority over it in your life. The power of sin no longer holds you down. This man didn't get that. We have to be aware of the consequences of sin in our life. Even if it seems that they aren't present or haven't happened yet. But look, our children, our communities, our attitudes, our beliefs are all colored by our view of sin and its tolerance in ourselves. We often tolerate something that's sinful because we don't know how to stop it or we don't know what to do about it. But the fact of the matter is, there's nothing God can do for any of us if we're not willing to let him heal us. In order to get well, you're going to have to risk that God can do it. Maybe you sense a problem in your life that's blocking you from having integrity in your walk with Christ. What would that be? Maybe it's a physical malady you're struggling with or an emotional wholeness that you seek. You really want Jesus to make you well, but you're struggling. Or perhaps you don't fully believe you have spiritual maturity enough and enough faith or trust for Jesus to do this kind of work in you to make you completely well in all aspects. Did you know having spiritual and emotional peace is a huge contributor to physical well-being? When it's missing, you have a lot of stress. If you have a lot of stress in your life, stress creates all these tensions inside of you and your body tries to compensate with all that stress, releasing chemicals and stuff that end up eventually making you sick. Stress creates illness. I think we all know that. Back in the day, they call it E-I-I, emotionally induced illnesses. I was good at that. I learned this as a kid. I'd be so stressed about a test the next day, I'd wake up throwing up and I didn't have to go to school. I learned how to work that system. But that's true. Stress will tear us up inside. Stomach aches, ulcers, heartburn, headaches, you name it. Those are just a few of the ways it shows up in our life. And the stress comes because we don't have internal peace. We don't think things are right and we can't make them right. We don't know what to do about it. And there's no calm inside. And so stress keeps circulating over and over again. That's toxic to our physical body, let alone our mental, but spiritually too. And a part of us questions or doubts that Jesus can do what he said. Kind of like a double-mindedness. Yes, I know Jesus can do this, but... 
I think I know. Well, I know it because it's there and it's true and I read it and it makes sense and therefore I know Jesus can make me completely well. But I, but I think he does anyway. And you're convinced, but you're not. It's called double-mindedness. James says a double-minded person is unstable in everything they do because they just can't make a decision and go with it. And you're not going to get well as long as you try to deny that doubting part of yourself. Oh, that part, you know, it's just, it's just in the way, but I, I trust Jesus, kind of. If you try to be too perfect and can't ever admit to making mistakes, the discouragement that sets in is going to defeat you every time. It's better to embrace the doubts <clears throat> that you have and the double-mindedness. Bring them to Christ. It's better to admit there's a part of your mind that really doesn't want to be well. And you've become used to being stuck and sick. And some even have gotten so bad that they play the role of being sick without actually being sick. You could be so used to your unhealthy feelings that they seem like they're a part of your life. Well, this is just who I am. Maybe you've always been depressed or anxious and that's just who you are. You've accepted it. Or you've always had attention issues ever since you were a child. Just can't think of a time you didn't. Maybe despite many attempts to stop, you still get angry and you just can't stop doing it. You can't help yourself. Well, that's just how I am. And every time you try to be upbeat and peaceful, focused or calm, some stressful situation comes along and it sets you back into those feelings and there you go back to the races again. And when you hear Jesus ask you in those situations, if you want to be well, you say, I've tried, I just can't shake it. Never have been able to, God. It's just, you know, it's me, you know, it's the way you made me. Or maybe you say a shame-filled statement like this. Jesus really can heal people. It's for everybody, but not me. Everybody but me gets this. I was a kid and I had that one. Jesus loves everybody except for me. That's shame-based. Believe in God doesn't love you for some reason. Or maybe you think, could God really heal a marriage? My marriage? My children's marriage? My Could God really do that? If any of those questions are floating around in your head, I have to ask you this. Are you willing to be able to take a risk and trust Jesus is able? Would you be willing to try one more time? Would you be willing to let yourself onto the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ? And let him heal and restore you and show you what he can do and risk again. No matter how many years of thoughts and processes that have seemed to be ironclad set in concrete, Jesus doesn't see it that way. God delights in doing what for us seems impossible. And yet sometimes... We get into a situation and God gets us out. We say, thank you, God, I'll never do it again. And a little later, there we are again. God, help me with this situation. I made a mess of it. You know, my relationship, I blew it up and now I'm in trouble. 
help me, God, get out of this. Help me fix this. And I'll never do it again. I'll get help. I'll do whatever I can. And God says to us when we keep thinking like that, you've got a couple choices here. One not so good and one a whole lot better. And the one is to say, God, I'll never do it again. Because some reason, if I promise not to do it again, I'll be better. Or I'll just continue in the same pattern with that. Or I can say, Lord, I can't fix this. I can't change this. And whatever's in me, whatever in my behavior, thoughts, deeds, beliefs, or actions, my spiritual life, my relational life, social life, whatever is in me that I have been harboring that is not true according to you and to your word, help me get rid of this. Because I want to be healed of anything that would detract from a good life with you. I don't want anything to stand in the way. Jesus said it so simply. Stop sinning and see how your life changes. But there's some sins that we don't think are sins because we're so used to them being a part of who we think we are. But let me tell you something. And this is a truth I learned a few years ago. When I was struggling really, really bad with depression, I came across a verse. It said, the kingdom of God consists of peace, joy, and love in the Holy Spirit and fellowship. And it talked about things that are not in the kingdom of God. And so God said to me, did you know depression isn't a part of my kingdom? Did you know that? And I said, but God, I have it. And therefore, because I have it and I'm in your kingdom, I brought it in. He goes, no, no, it's not a part of the kingdom. You don't have to stay that way. You have to let your life be transformed. I'm not telling you there's some depression that can't be healed. I'm telling you the depression I had was self-inflicted that I didn't know I was doing it and I was perpetuating it and justifying it. And that was a problem. But anything that we don't line up with in our life, including the way we feel about ourselves or others, that doesn't line up with the peace, joy, love, and fellowship in the Holy Spirit, is not a part of the kingdom of God. How can we justify that? I'll tell you how we can. We think that's who we are. That's who the world says that's what life is. And we've come to think of it as normal. And I believe it's time for a new normal in our lives and in our church. We start next Sunday working on our marriages. <coughs> Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today, your promise in Jesus Christ. I thank you that you know how to move, grow, lift, and build. And tonight, may we be risk takers even after we've heard this message this morning. And tomorrow morning when we wake up, may we be risk takers after we've heard this message this morning. And tomorrow night, may we be risk takers after we've heard this by risking to trust that you are who you say you are. You do what you say you do and you can do it without fail because you've never failed in your promises and you're not about to start. Give us confidence and boldness, Lord. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.